Chapter Fourteen of Oliver Cromwell and the Rule of the Puritans in England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Florence Short. Oliver Cromwell and the Rule of the Puritans in England by Charles H. Firth. Chapter Fourteen. Cromwell and Scotland the execution of the king destroyed the alliance which cromwell had established between argyle and the independents argyle would have been glad to preserve it but his power depended on the clergy and the middle classes both deeply incensed with the sectaries who had dared to kill a scottish king the day after the news of the king's death reached edinburgh charles second was there proclaimed king not of scotland only but of great britain and ireland the scottish envoys in england protested against the late revolution denouncing the establishment of toleration or any other change in the fundamental laws of the kingdom and demanding that charles second upon just satisfaction given to both kingdoms should be placed upon his father's throne the long parliament retorted by expelling the envoys and declaring that their protest laid the grounds of a new and bloody war henceforth indeed the war took a new character it was no longer a constitutional but a national struggle scotland like ireland was attempting to dictate to england the form of government which it should choose and thus the english contest for self-government inevitably widened into a contest for the supremacy of the british isles nothing delayed war between scotland and england but the difficulty of effecting an agreement between charles and the scots except on their own terms the presbyterians would not fight for him until no other way of regaining his crown was left charles would not accept their terms the scottish commissioners demanded that he should not only accept the covenant and the presbyterian system for scotland but pledge himself to impose them on england and ireland as he declined to force presbyterianism on those two kingdoms without the consent of their parliaments the negotiations were broken off in may sixteen forty nine and while charles prepared to join ormond in ireland montrose was commissioned to call the scottish royalists once more to arms in september sixteen forty nine charles landed at jersey on his way to ireland but cromwell's victories checked his further progress before the year ended it was evident that if he was to be restored it must be by scottish hands and in february sixteen fifty he returned to holland necessity left him no choice indeed wrote a scottish agent from jersey he is brought very low he has not bread both for himself and his servants and betwixt him and his brother not one english shilling negotiations began again at breda in march sixteen fifty the scots required him to take both covenants to impose presbyterianism on england and ireland and to disavow both ormond and montrose charles struggled hard to modify these conditions and the treaty by which he agreed to them was not signed till he was actually on his voyage 
he hoped that when he came to scotland his presence would win concessions from the covenanters and a royalist party would gather round him but he found himself treated more as a captive than a king english royalists who had accompanied him from holland were ordered to leave the country scottish royalists were excluded from his army and his court and when he reached edinburgh he saw fixed over the tower of the toll-booth and fresh from the hangman's hands the head of montrose the diplomacy of the king had sacrificed his noblest champion instead of holding montrose back till the negotiations ended he had urged him to immediate action your vigorous proceeding he wrote will be a good means to bring them to such a moderation as may produce a present union of that whole nation in our service when the scottish envoys at breda demanded the abandonment of montrose charles agreed to order him to disband his troops with a secret promise of their indemnity but the countermands came too late knowing that charles was treating with the covenanters and that he was in danger of disavowal montrose still resolved to spend his life for the king's service in march sixteen fifty he arrived in the orkneys with a little body of danish and german mercenaries in april with about twelve hundred men and forty horse he advanced through caithness to the south of sutherland there at carpesdale on april twenty seventh major strawn with two hundred and fifty of david leslie's disciplined cavalry fell upon him in his march south scattered his handful of horsemen and cut to pieces his foreign infantry montrose escaped from the rout and wandered amongst the hills till starvation obliged him to seek shelter macleod of assent gave him up to the scottish government and on may twenty first he was hanged at the market cross in the high street of edinburgh about the time of montrose's death cromwell returned to england parliament had voted that both fairfax and cromwell should command against the scots the one as general the other in his old post as lieutenant-general but when fairfax found that the council of state meant to invade scotland he laid down his commission the best refutation of the theory that cromwell sought to undermine fairfax in order to obtain his post is the vigour with which he endeavoured to persuade him to keep it it was morally certain urged cromwell that the scots meant to invade england war was unavoidable your excellency will soon determine whether it is better to have this war in the bowels of another country than our own but nothing could overcome fairfax's repugnance to an offensive war human probabilities he repeated were not sufficient ground to make war upon our brethren the scots the truth was he had long been dissatisfied with the results of the revolution in which events had given him so prominent a part and seized any plausible excuse for retirement as he persisted his resignation was accepted and on the twenty sixth of june sixteen fifty cromwell became by act of parliament captain-general and commander-in-chief of all the forces of the commonwealth i have not sought these things he wrote to a friend truly i have been called unto them by the lord and therefore am not without some assurance that he will enable his poor worm and weak servant to do his will 
at the end of july cromwell entered scotland with an army of ten thousand five hundred foot and five thousand five hundred horse his old comrade david leslie to whom the scots had given the command could bring about eighteen thousand foot and eight thousand horse to meet him but as leslie's soldiers were much inferior in quality he stood resolutely on the defensive marching along the coast and drawing supplies mainly from the english fleet cromwell found the scottish army entrenched between Leith and calton hill a month passed in marches around edinburgh and fruitless skirmishes and unsuccessful attempts to draw the scots from their unassailable fastnesses leslie took no risks and met each move with unfailing skill at the end of august victuals grew scarce in the english camp and disease was rife with a poor shattered hungry discouraged army cromwell fell back on dunbar intending to fortify the town to be used as a magazine and basis of operations and to await reinforcements from berwick leslie pressing hard on his heels occupied dune hill which overlooks dunbar and seized the passes between dunbar and berwick thanks to his knowledge of the country he had again outmaneuvered cromwell and the scots boasted that they had cromwell in a worse pound than the king had had essex in cornwall cromwell owned the greatness of the danger we are he wrote upon an engagement very difficult the enemy hath blocked up our way at the pass at copper's path through which we cannot get without almost a miracle he lieth so upon the hills that we know not how to come that way without great difficulty and our lying here daily consumeth our men who fall sick beyond imagination his sixteen thousand men were reduced now to eleven thousand and some officers proposed that the foot should be shipped on the fleet while the horse endeavoured to cut their way through the enemy but their general remained as he expressed it comfortable in spirit and having much hope in the lord leslie's original plan was to fall on cromwell's rear as he tried to force his way along the road to berwick but the parliamentary committee in his camp ordered him to descend the hill and bar cromwell's route seeing that cromwell did not continue his march he believed he was shipping his guns and perhaps part of his infantry and thought all he had to do was to prevent the escape of the enemy accordingly on september second leslie moved his army from the dune hill to the gentle slopes at its foot intending to attack the next day his left was covered in flank and to some extent in front too by the steep ravine which ran obliquely from the hill to the sea and separated the positions of the two armies his infantry were posted in the centre with their backs to the hillside on the right where the ground was more level and open he had massed two-thirds of his cavalry leslie had twenty-two thousand men to cromwell's eleven thousand and told his soldiers they would have the english army alive or dead by seven next morning when cromwell examined the new position of the scots he saw that his opportunity had come at last leslie's left shut in between the hill and the ravine was practically useless and his centre cramped by the hill in its rear had too little room to manoeuvre both cromwell and major-general lambert agreed that if the scottish right were beaten their whole army would be endangered 
that evening in answer to leslie's movement cromwell drew up his forces along the line of the ravine and about rocksmith's house as if his sole purpose was to stand on the defensive the night was stormy and wet and after one or two alarms the scots were convinced that he did not mean to attack just before dawn cromwell pushed a strong body of horse and foot across the ravine and under cover of a false attack on their left massed all the troops he could against their right and their centre lambert and fleetwood with six regiments of horse attacked the scottish right while monk with about three thousand or four thousand foot engaged their centre supported by the fire of cromwell's guns from the other side of the ravine the scots were taken unprepared but as soon as they could get into battle order numbers told charging with the slope in their favour the scottish lancers broke one of lambert's regiments and monk's division was repulsed and forced to give ground at this critical moment cromwell himself came up with the reserve consisting of three regiments of foot and one of horse his own regiment of horse fell on the flank of the scottish cavalry lambert's troopers charged again and after a short sharp struggle the scottish right wing was broken through and through simultaneously cromwell's and pride's foot regiments furiously assailed the advancing scottish infantry and at push of pike did repel the stoutest regiment the enemy had while all along the line the english foot once more advancing drove back the scots some of leslie's infantry stood stubbornly but a cavalry charge on their exposed flank completed their discomfiture at cromwell's direction the flank attack became more and more pronounced till the scottish centre was rolled up from the right to left and penned in the triangle between the hill and the ravine the scottish infantry became a helpless mob unable either to fight or fly horse and foot says one of cromwell's officers were engaged all over the field and the scots all in confusion the sun appearing upon the sea i heard knoll say now let god arise and his enemies shall be scattered and following us as we slowly marched i heard him say i profess they run and then was the scots army all in disorder and running both right wing and left and main battle they routed one another after we had done their work on their right wing three thousand men fell in the battle and ten thousand were taken prisoners while leslie collected the shattered remnant of his army at stirling cromwell occupied edinburgh and leith and all the eastern portion of the scottish lowlands edinburgh castle held out and the south-west was still in arms after dunbar as before it cromwell's strongest wish was not a conquest but an agreement which would restore peace between the two nations give the state of england he wrote to the committee of estates that satisfaction and security for their peaceable and quiet living beside you which may in justice be demanded from those who have as you taken their enemy into their bosom whilst he was in hostility against them he had opened his campaign with manifestos protesting the affection of england for the scots and demonstrating their error in supporting the stuarts these overtures the leaders of the independents urged him to renew they regarded it as a fratricidal war the grim ireton expressed the fear that cromwell had not been sufficiently forbearing and long-suffering 
subtle st john drew a distinction between scots and irish reminding him that although the irish were atheists and papists to be ruled with a rod of iron the scots were truly children of god and he must still endeavour to heap coals of fire on their heads cromwell whose heart yearned after the godly in scotland began now a new set of expostulations directed particularly to the ministers whose influence had frustrated his appeals to the nation he charged them with pretending a reformation and laying the foundation of it in getting worldly power for themselves with perverting the covenant to serve secular ends with claiming infallibility for their doctrine just as the pope did their claim to control the civil government he dismissed with few words we look on the ministers as helpers of not lords over god's people then he refuted with like vigour the claim of the kirk to prohibit dissent in order to prevent heresy your pretended fear lest error should step in is like the man who would keep all wine out of the country lest men should be drunk it will be found an unjust and unwise jealousy to deprive a man of his natural liberty upon a supposition he may abuse it when he doth abuse it judge finally he rebuked them for their hypocrisy and their blindness was it not hypocritical to pretend to cry down all malignance and yet to receive and set up the head of them and to act for the kingdom of christ in his name was it not blindness to shut their eyes to the meaning of their late defeat god had given judgment in their controversy at dunbar and they refused to see it did not you solemnly appeal and pray did not we do so too and ought not you and we to think with fear and trembling of the hand of the great god in this mighty and strange appearance of his either events or cromwell's arguments produced their effect in the scotch camp there were great searchings of heart amongst devout presbyterians and a schism broke out in the army rigid covenanters renounced worldly alliances in compliance with an ungodly monarch i desire to serve the king faithfully said colonel kerr but on condition that the king himself be subject to the king of kings colonel strong after some negotiation with cromwell laid down his commission kerr with three or four thousand westland whigs refused obedience to the committee of estates and tried to wage war independently but attempting to surprise lambert at hamilton in lancashire on december first he was taken prisoner his force scattered and the whole of the southwest fell into cromwell's power more lasting was the division amongst the clergy one party headed by gillespie and guthrie published a remonstrance repudiating the idea of fighting for charles second till he had proved his fitness to be a covenanted king and condemning those who had closed their eyes to his insincerity the remonstrance as they were termed would have no alliance with either malignants or engagers the other party laxer in its moral views and moved more by national than religious feeling was ready to accept the compromises which the necessities of the state demanded when parliament passed resolutions allowing malignants and engagers to fight in the national ranks it consented to their employment on a simple profession of penitence 
for the next ten years the quarrels of resolutioners and remonstrance made up scotland's ecclesiastical history cromwell had foreseen the political consequences of dunbar surely he predicted it's probable the kirk has done their due i believe their king will set up upon his own score now the prediction now came true charles had suffered great humiliations since he came to scotland he had submitted to all conditions and sworn many kinds of oaths he had been obliged to declare his sorrow for his father's hostility to the work of the reformation and his mother's love of idolatry he had seen the scottish ranks purged of royalists and had been forbidden to approach the army that was fighting in his name at last events had brought the parliament round to his policy from the date of his coronation at scone on january first sixteen fifty one charles was king of scotland in fact as well as name partly driven by necessity because the ecclesiastical divisions had deprived him of his stronger supporters partly lured by hope because charles offered to marry his daughter argyle fell in with the king's policy but each stage in its development diminished his influence first he had to share his power with hamilton and his partisans and then the repeal of the act of classes put an end to it altogether by allowing even montrose's adherents to hold office thus within a year from his landing in scotland charles had succeeded in combining both royalists and presbyterians in support of his cause his hopes were never higher it seemed possible to effect a similar combination between the presbyterians and royalists in england in march sixteen fifty one the english government detected a plot for a rising in lancashire which was to be helped by troops from scotland and isolated insurrections which broke out in norfolk december sixteen fifty and in cardiganshire june sixteen fifty one prove the reality of these conspiracies if a scottish army entered england the general royalist rising of sixteen forty eight might be repeated and perhaps with a different issue the campaign of sixteen fifty one began late during the winter blackness and tantalon castles were captured and in february there was an advance on stirling which the tempestuous weather frustrated in the spring cromwell's illness delayed operations the hardships of irish campaigning had impaired his health i grow an old man and feel the infirmities of age marvellously stealing upon me he wrote to his wife on the day after dunbar but he never spared himself and in february sixteen fifty one he fell ill of an intermittent fever brought on by exposure three successive relapses brought him to the verge of the grave and more than once his life was despaired of parliament in alarm sent him two of the best physicians of the day and advised him to remove to england for change of air in june he was sufficiently recovered to take the field and found leslie's army posted on the hills south of stirling we cannot come to fight him except he please or we go upon too manifest hazards wrote cromwell he having very strongly laid himself and having a very great advantage there unable to attack or to lure leslie from his position cromwell resolved to turn it the english fleet commanded the sea and it was easy to throw lambert and four thousand men across the fourth into fife leslie sent sir john brown against him with a like force but lambert annihilated brown's force at inverkeithing on july twentieth 
cromwell poured more troops across the water till he had fourteen thousand men in fife and then taking their command himself he marched on perth which fell after a siege of twenty-four hours august second the capture of perth cut off leslie from his supplies and severed his communications with the north of scotland but the way to england was left open and confident that english royalists would flock to his banner charles and his whole army marched for the border cromwell had foreseen the movement and was well aware that it might alarm the english government but he justified his strategy with sober confidence we have done he said to the best of our judgment knowing that if some issue were not put to this business it would occasion another winter's war to the ruin of your soldiery for whom the scots are too hard in respect of enduring the winter difficulties of this country and to the endless expense of the treasury of england in prosecuting this war it may be supposed we might have kept the enemy from this by interposing between him and england which truly i believe we might but how to remove him out of this place without doing what we have done unless we had a commanding army on both sides of the river of forth is not clear to us or how to answer the inconveniences aforementioned we understand not he bade them to be of good courage and collect what forces they could to check the march of the scots indeed we have this comfortable experience from the lord that the enemy is heart-smitten by god and whenever the lord shall bring us up to them we believe the lord will make the desperateness of this counsel of theirs to appear and the folly of it also when england was much more unsteady than now and when a much more considerable army of theirs unfoiled invaded you and we had but a weak force to make resistance at preston upon deliberate advice we chose rather to put ourselves between their army and scotland and how god succeeded that is not well to be forgotten charles entered england by carlisle and marched through lancashire and along the welsh border hoping to gather recruits from those districts during his progress cromwell leaving monk to secure scotland sent his cavalry under lambert and harrison to pursue the king and followed himself through yorkshire with the infantry as he went he was joined by the forces of the counties through which he passed and all over england the new county militia rushed to arms for however much they might detest the republic englishmen hesitated to assist a scottish invader in lancashire distrust of malignants prevented the presbyterians from taking up arms though the earl of derby raised a little army amongst the cavaliers on the twenty second of august charles reached worcester with less than sixteen thousand men worn out by marching and halted to rest and collect his adherents a few devoted gentlemen made their way to his standard but the people remained apathetic and three days later derby's levies were routed at wigan by colonel lilburn by this time the net was closing round the king cromwell joining lambert and harrison had established himself at evesham and blocked the road to london with thirty thousand men his superior numbers enabled him to divide his forces and to attack worcester from both sides 
lambert and fleetwood with eleven thousand men crossed to the west bank of the Severn and prevented the retreat of the royalists into wales whilst cromwell with the bulk of the army remained on the east bank and pushed close up to the city on september third the anniversary of dunbar fleetwood's force advanced upon worcester from the southwest between it and worcester lay the river team a tributary of the Severn, held by a royalist division which had broken the bridges cromwell threw a bridge of boats across the Severn, just above the mouth of the team and fell on the flank of the scots with four of his best regiments the lord general did lead the van in person and was the first man that set foot on the enemy's ground under cover of cromwell's attack fleetwood threw a similar bridge across the team and his infantry poured across to cooperate with cromwell outnumbered but fighting stubbornly the scots gave way we beat the enemy from hedge to hedge wrote cromwell till we beat him into worcester charles who watched the battle from the tower of the cathedral seeing that the great part of cromwell's army was engaged on the western bank sallied forth with every man he could muster to crush the force left on the eastern side for three hours the struggle lasted at first the scots gained ground but cromwell recrossing the river put himself at the head of his men and drove the enemy back in confusion into the city his soldiers entered at their heels and storming their fort royal turned its guns on the streets my lord general did exceedingly hazard himself riding up and down in the midst of the fire riding himself in person to the enemy's foot to offer them quarter whereto they returned no answer but shot in the end what was left of the foot laid down their arms while the horse fled through the north gate and took the road to scotland but not a single regiment or troop reached their home the militia which beset the bridges and highways gathered up prisoners in hundreds and the country people hunted down stragglers with merciless ferocity half the nobility of scotland were amongst the prisoners amongst the few who escaped was the young king the parliament threatened all who sheltered charles with the penalties of high treason and promised one thousand pounds to any person who gave him up troopers scoured the roads to find him and officials at all the ports were warned to watch for a tall man above two yards high with hair a deep brown near to black but though englishmen would not fight for charles they would not betray him and of the scores he trusted not one proved false sometimes hiding in an oak tree sometimes in a priest's hole disguised now as a countryman in an old worn leathern doublet in green breeches and now as a serving-man in grey homespun charles wandered through the southwest searching for a ship at last he found one at brighton and landed safe in france on october twenty second for scotland cromwell's victory marked the end of independence the absence of leslie's army left no force in scotland capable of giving battle to monks six thousand veterans and there was no fortress in scotland which could resist his artillery monk captured stirling on august fourteenth and the seizure of the committee of estates at aylith on august twenty eighth deprived the national defence of its head and destroyed the last relic of a national government dundee was stormed and sacked on september first montrose aberdeen inverness and other towns fell without a blow in february sixteen fifty two 
the orkneys were occupied and in may donatar castle the last fortress to hold out surrendered argyle who had refused to follow charles into england endeavoured to maintain an independent position in the west highlands but in august he too was forced to give in his adhesion to the english government and the subjugation of scotland was completed an english garrison of twelve thousand or fourteen thousand men and strong fortresses built at Leith, ayr inverness and inverlochy kept henceforth the conquered country in submission in spite of the general discontent no effort to throw off the english yoke had any chance of success in sixteen fifty three the war with holland emboldened the highlanders to take arms again and a rising began which was headed first by the earl of glencarn afterwards by general middleton the insurgents made forays into the lowlands but were never strong enough to do much more and their own disputes ruined their cause monk returned to his command in scotland in may sixteen fifty four wasted the highland glens with fire and sword defeated middleton's forces and by the end of the year put an end to the insurrection the policy of the long parliament and of the protector towards scotland resembled in its aim their policy towards ireland in each case the object was to make the conquered country into an integral part of the british empire but the measures adopted to attain this object differed considerably in the two countries in scotland there was no general confiscation of the lands of the vanquished and no far-reaching alteration in the framework of society the scottish royalists were treated much as the english cavaliers had been the long parliament confiscated the estates of those who had invaded england in sixteen forty eight in sixteen fifty one but the protector adopted a more moderate policy imposing the penalty of forfeiture only on twenty-four leaders and fining minor offenders a few english officers were given grants of the forfeited lands but most of their revenue was devoted to public purposes hence the scottish confiscations although they ruined many of the nobility and gentry left the bulk of the nation untouched in scotland there was no prescription of the national religion but the national church lost a portion of its independence and was deprived of all power to check or control the civil government in sixteen fifty three the general assembly the glory and strength of our church upon earth as a presbyterian minister termed it was forcibly dissolved but local synods and presbyterians were allowed to meet the english government deprived the church courts of their coercive jurisdiction over non-members and protected the formation of independent congregations it appointed commissioners to visit the universities punished ministers who preached against it and decided disputes about appointments to vacant livings but it interfered little in the internal affairs of the church and held the balance tolerably even between remonstrance and resolutioners though deprived of its political power and much of its independence the scottish church was not unprosperous these bitter waters says robert blair were sweetened by the lord's remarkably blessing the labours of his faithful servants a great door and an effectual was open to many as in ireland so in scotland the separate national parliament ended and was replaced by representation in the parliament of great britain the incorporating union which james i had unskilfully attempted the long parliament decreed 
and the protector realized in sixteen fifty two commissioners sent by the long parliament extorted a reluctant consent to the principle of the union but the details were still unsettled when cromwell became protector by the instrument of government scotland was assigned thirty members in the british parliament and the protector's ordinances completed the work english statesmen regarded the union as a generous concession it was intended by the parliament says ludlow to convince even their enemies that their principal design was to procure the happiness and prosperity of all that were under their government and was cheerfully accepted by the most judicious amongst the scots who well understood how great a concession it was in the parliament of england to permit a people they had conquered to have a part in the legislative power in reality both ecclesiastical and national feeling were arrayed against it as for the embodying of scotland with england said robert blair it will be as when the poor bird is embodied in the hawk that has eaten it up with few exceptions all classes regarded the incorporating union with hostility and aversion the protector hoped to reconcile scotland to the union by the material benefits which accompanied it absolute freedom of trade between the two countries proportionate taxation and a better system of justice were promised nor were these empty words tenures implying vassalage and servitude and heritable jurisdictions were abolished popular courts barren were set up english justices of the peace introduced the fees of the law courts diminished and new judges appointed who administered the laws without fear or favour even scots admitted the improvement in the administration of justice there was good justice done says burnet to speak truth adds nicol the english were more indulgent and merciful to the scots than the scots to their own countrymen and neighbours and their justice exceeded the scots in many things the civil administration of scotland was in the hands at first of parliamentary commissioners and after sixteen fifty five of a scottish council of nine appointed by the protector which included two scots under their vigorous rule such order was maintained as scotland had never known before the highlands were tamed by the english garrisons and the moss troopers of the border hunted down and punished a man boasted one of the english officials might ride all through scotland with a hundred pounds in his pocket and nothing but a switch in his hand the class which benefited most by these reforms was the middle class the towns wrote monk to cromwell are generally the most faithful to us of any people in this nation in sixteen fifty eight cromwell describing to his parliament the condition of scotland exulted over the improvement which english rule had produced the meaner sort he said live as well and are likely to come into as thriving a condition under your government as when they were under their own great lords who made them work for their living no better than the peasants of france i am loath to speak anything which may reflect upon that nation but the middle sort of people do grow up into such a substance as makes their lives comfortable if not better than before Burnet in his description of the cromwellian regime in scotland goes so far as to say we always reckon those eight years of usurpation a time of great peace and prosperity 
but this is an evident exaggeration the devastation and loss caused by the long wars had produced widespread poverty i do think admitted the protector the scots nation have been under as great a suffering in point of livelihood and subsistence outwardly as any people i have yet named to you i do think truly they are a very ruined nation the weak point of english rule was the heavy taxation which the necessity of maintaining so large an army in scotland caused bailey's letters are full of complaints of the burden of taxation a great army in a multitude of garrisons bides above our heads and deep poverty keeps all estates exceedingly under the taxes of all sorts are so great the trade so little that it is a marvel if extreme scarcity of money and not soon in some mischief the english government had originally imposed a land tax of ten thousand pounds per month on scotland but this was levied with such difficulty that it was finally reduced to six thousand pounds and in the year of cromwell's death england had to remit to scotland a contribution of over one hundred forty thousand pounds towards the expenses of the military government which held scotland in obedience scots in general regarded the benefits which english rule conferred as too dearly purchased at the cost of heavy taxes and national independence in ireland for weal or woe the cromwellian conquest left an ineffaceable mark on the national history in scotland on the other hand all that cromwell had done or tried to do union law reform and freedom of trade vanished when the restoration came but the aims of his policy were so just that subsequent statesmen were compelled to follow where he led the union and free trade came in seventeen o seven and the abolition of hereditary jurisdictions in seventeen forty six chapter fourteen cromwell and scotland